Hello, podcast listeners. Just a quick note that you're listening to a new podcast series called Asia Rising. You can find it in the podcast store or on SoundCloud. This podcast of Asia Rising is brought to you by Latrobe Asia. They've got an upcoming public lecture that you can go and see at the State Library of Victoria. It's on Tuesday, 14th of October, starting at 6 p.m. The topic will be the transformation of Asia and the return of great power rivalry. And the speaker will be my guest today, Professor Nick Bisley. You can find out more information at the Latrobe Asia website. That's latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast in which we look at the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and today I'm joined by Professor Nick Bisley, Director of Latrobe Asia. Thanks, Matt. Our topic for discussion today is Prime Minister Tony Abbott, his first year in power, and how he's interacted with Asian countries. Nick, we'll start a bit broad and refer to an article that you wrote for The Conversation last week. In this article, you referred to Abbott's conduct as surprisingly energetic and focused towards foreign policy. Tell me about Abbott's foreign activity and why would you use the term surprisingly energetic? Abbott, since he's been in office, has completed at least as many overseas trips as Kevin Rudd did in his first year in office. He's travelled further, actually, by some people's calculation, you know, looking at the number of miles they go. And when Abbott was in opposition, the coalition really went at Rudd for gallivanting around the world stage, not focusing on core business. So if you had wound back the clock and said, make a prediction about what Tony Abbott's foreign policy is going to be like, the first thing you would have said is he's not going to be as active or as prominent on the global stage as Kevin Rudd was, because that's A, what he'd said he was going to do, and B, it just didn't play to his instincts. I think with Abbott, you have a guy who, prior to coming to office, had never had any meaningful experience in foreign policy, never particularly great interest in it, and showed no signs during either the election campaign or in the lead up to it of being someone for whom foreign policy was going to be a particular priority, you know, as contrast to Rudd. It's surprising in that sense. Good surprise, though. Well, depends on your point of view. Yeah. Surprising in the sense of the number of trips and the amount of time and energy he's investing into it. I think it's also surprising in that it's been pretty good. They've got a very clear set of priorities that they're pursuing. I think they've been very effective in most cases at prosecuting Australian policy and having Australian interests advanced. I think quite disciplined, very focused, some clear strategic priorities. Now, you may not agree with them, and we can get to that later on if you want to talk about the extent to which the judgments that they're making are are the right ones. But I think overall, particularly on the region and looking at the, the effort that's been put into working on the relationships with the big players, I think they've been very effective. So, you know, like I said, if you'd, if you'd wound back the clock and said, what's your prediction going to be for the first 12 months? I would have said a fairly low-profile foreign policy, good old-fashioned core message of Australian foreign policy generally about the alliance, about engagement with Asia and international rule of law, and that's about it. Uh, and most of it subcontracted to Julie Bishop and David Johnson and, and other relevant ministers, where we've seen a highly personalised foreign policy, a lot of investment and energy from the Prime Minister himself, and all the signs so far is that this is going to continue right the way through his first term. How does his foreign policy and his conduct overseas stack up in relation to Asia when you put it against, to say, his interaction with the USA or his interaction with Europe? Is he treating them as different arenas? He is, to some degree. Particularly the Europe stuff is seen as, as quite separate and, and distinct from the Asia policy, whereas I think 
attitudes to the US are driven by yeah, the alliance and, and more generally America's role in Asia. So I think that that's seen as, as one story. I think what we've seen so far has been a very, very close relationship that's been developed between Australia and Japan and particularly between Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Abbott. They clearly get along. They clearly share a worldview, as it were, about the region, about their respective places in the region and what each can offer the other. They're both kind of conservative nationalists. I think they both probably share stories about being on a tight leash by their handlers. Both, I think, Abe and Abbott are people who know that if they spoke their minds in public freely, it would cause them and their governments considerable damage, just as an aside. He had this quite well-publicised trip to India recently. A lot was achieved. Not quite sure what the relationship was like that was developed between Modi and Abbott. Uh, Modi had, immediately prior to Abbott's arrival, he'd come back from a five-day trip to Japan where, by all accounts, Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Modi engaged in international diplomacy's number one bromance. They are each other's number one Twitter fans. In fact, Abe only follows three people, his wife, someone else in Japan, and Modi. So there's this... You know, meeting of minds, and they did this sort of trip through Japan together, sort of kept appearing at tourist spots and these sorts of things, and they, they clearly had a connection. We didn't seem to get that from Abbott, and I think Abbott, by all accounts, was a lot less comfortable in India and sure-footed in India than he was in Tokyo or in Beijing or Seoul. It's easy to call it a, a bromance or even playing favourites, but is this kind of relationship strategic? I mean, he labelled the relationship with Japan as being best friends, and to bring out the BFF label, that's quite a big mm. statement. But with China, they were friends, just good friends, not best friends. Mm. The language around best friend, the BFF language was a blunder. I mean, that was an error. It was a rookie error. They'd been in government for about two weeks when he said it. it caused no end of consternation, not only with China, but with everyone else. You know, everyone else in the region says, what about us? You came and told us we were your best friends. <laughs> um, that's just diplomatic slip of the tongue. Being a little less flippant. There is a very clear strategic logic at play behind what the Abbott government's doing with Japan. There is a very deliberate effort to build a very close relationship with Japan, and one that is strategically much closer than with China. In some respects, the language about Japan being our best friend in Asia is actually what the Abbott government thinks. Whether they should have said it or not, they've said it. In a weird way, it's not entirely unhelpful in the sense that it's now pretty clear what Australia thinks at the moment, at any rate, about its relationships in Northeast Asia in particular, and it is very clearly developing with a long-term view of having a very close economic, military, foreign policy relationship with Japan. Japan and Australia share a whole set of interests, not just trading interests, but the big one is we both have a big stake in the basic strategic status quo remaining as it is. If you don't have a Japan that's there, then the idea of the US seeing off China or being able to incorporate China into an American-dominated region is much harder to see. And I think what Australia is trying to do is, is essentially develop that relationship to support that broader goal. What signals that sends to China, I think, are potentially quite risky and quite dangerous because it puts a lot of Australia's investment, as it were, on that working. Because if it doesn't work, if Japan isn't able to play the kind of role which Australia would like it to play, then Australia's links to China may be subject to some challenge as China gets richer and more confident, assuming that also continues to happen.
Well, Abbott's had a bit of success signing free trade agreements with Japan and South Korea, and he's indicated that he wants to do the same with Indonesia, India, and China as well. He's making it his priority at the upcoming G20 summit. Who are the real winners with these FTA agreements, and are they really something Abbott can claim as his victory, or is he just building on the work that came from the government before him? Yeah, it's a good question. Let's start with that, the latter question and then work backwards. Who wins and who loses is a bit speculative because they haven't actually come into force yet. But the two biggies that you mentioned, the ones with Korea and Japan, they've both been in negotiation for a considerable period of time, particularly the Japan one. No one thought that was actually going to happen because the sticking points were thought to be things that Japan was not going to cave in on and Australia would not accept a deal without significant concessions. It's primarily about agriculture and access to the domestic agricultural market in Japan. Abe's government turned around and gave some concessions around the margins of the agricultural market and the Abbott people said, let's take it. That's a deal we'll accept. So where I think had in the extraordinarily unlikely event that the ALP had managed to get re-elected last year, I don't think the ALP would have accepted it because they had been in the position of negotiating this thing and had said, unless we get a lot more movement on this, we're not going to buy it. So whilst it's a long-running negotiation and a lot's gone into it, I think in this one you can chalk this up to Abbott. Essentially, they made a very political call and said, we value the deal. That's to say we value having an agreement, even though it's suboptimal from an economic point of view, because we really value a relationship with Japan. And yeah. we think this is a adding yet another layer to that strong relationship. Is that playing the politics back home then? Because people will know broadly FTA equals good for Australia. Uh, we don't need to know about the details, though. We'll leave that to the politicians. So just the fact that that's in place now. Yeah, I think that informed it to some degree. I think yeah. the actual electoral benefit of these things is pretty marginal. But it was clear that he went to Northeast Asia in April. And the, the publicly stated goal was we're going to go there and we're going to come back with three trade agreements. And they came back with two out of three. Abbott gave this terrible speech in, in Shanghai saying, it's the World Cup grand final. And we've got two out. We're, we're, it, was really, it was just like, oh my God, you don't understand. This is terrible. But part of that was informed by the desire to come back to Australia and say the ALP was in government for six years or, and they couldn't sign one of these agreements. We've been in in power for six months and we've signed all three and that was definitely just that relentless cosh that Abbott likes to whack the ALP on the head with so there, there wasn't domestic electoral component to it I think with Japan in particular and also with China they are driven by a broader overarching international political logic which is in the case of Japan about binding that relationship and really giving the economic side a buttress alongside the defense and foreign policy stuff the game that the government's trying to play with China is to say, you know, how can we get to a position where we can have really good relations with Japan and the US and India and China? Simplify a bit, but essentially the risk is China will look at us and all the good relationships we have with these other major powers and see containment, see some sort of effort to hem China in. But ha, we've got a free trade agreement. We can't possibly be in the business of containing you. I'm simplifying a little bit, but that thinking is what's there. And that's why I tend to think that, like the Japan agreement, the government is probably likely to sign a deal with China that may not get everything that people want economically because it serves a political purpose to do it. There's a lot of playing sides going on with this kind of thing. And I can't help but get the impression that Abbott wants free trade agreements for the sake of having free trade agreements and isn't sweating it too much on the small details of how it will benefit people or what will come out of these deals broadly as long as there's a line in the sand of we win, we get this free trade mm. agreement. Who wins from these things in general? 
on the whole, the devil's always in the detail. And what we've seen from Australia's first blush of enthusiasm with free trade agreements, so this was this period about 10 years ago when we started to do a whole bunch of them with the US free trade agreement being the biggest and most prominent, but part of that also involved agreements with Singapore, Thailand, and a couple of others, is that the actual economic benefit that these agreements produce is not that great so far. Not negligible, but in analysis that I've seen of the 10 years of the existence of the US free trade agreement, by far the greatest factor influencing trade between these two countries is the currency. It's something completely outside the purview of the actual agreement. So the Australian currency has fluctuated in value by about 30% over that period. I think for the Abbott government, free trade agreements are political very much, and they're about sending political signals domestically because they're achievements, and internationally they're about sending a signal of a relationship. So that's why when they're in India, Abbott goes, oh, we need a free trade agreement. We've been talking around this economic partnership agreement, but we need to really bring it on home. And they, they set the target, I think, of concluding it by 2016, which people who watch these things really closely will tell you is just not going to happen. But the signaling is important and it'll continue to, to travel. I get the impression that one of the most volatile relationships we could have with Asian neighbours is with Indonesia at the moment. Of course, Abbott is eager to lock in a free trade agreement with Indonesia. But there is rocky situations around refugees. Also, there was the, the revelation that the Prime Minister's phone, there'd been an attempt to hack it by uh, Australian spy agencies. I think they did hack it. I, they, think, it's not they, I think they did hack... His uh, wife's phone. Yeah, they, they hacked his phone and they, I, I think this is right, tried to hack his wife's phone. This is the Indonesian president. Yeah, yeah. And while, while that happened under the, under the previous government, Abbott's had to deal with the fallout or mm. not deal with the fallout as... <laughs> if you want to take it. So what's your take on our relationship with Indonesia? Is it playing niceties or is it there to be used at our convenience a bit? The government always set itself up whilst in opposition. I think almost set itself up to fail with Indonesia by line they kept running was our foreign policy will be more Jakarta and less Geneva. And that was really a swipe at, at Rudd saying, yeah, Rudd's running around on the global stage when he should be spending more time in Southeast Asia on core business. And of course, since Abbott's been in charge, he's been to Indonesia once. He spent almost all of his foreign time when he's abroad in Northeast Asia, the US, or South Asia, or Europe. He's spent very little time in Southeast Asia, oddly enough. And, of course, the relationship with Indonesia was soured almost instantaneously when he came into office. Not because of his own doing, it has to be said, but made very difficult then by choices that he made. The two things that really made things difficult with Indonesia was not so much the revelations of the spying, but Abbott's response. So Abbott takes to the floor of parliament, filled with the parliamentary adrenaline and focused very firmly on the domestic way in which this story is playing and said, we will never apologise for the behaviour of our security agencies or words to that effect. And he paints himself into a corner by saying he's not going to apologise. And the Indonesians have very publicly said, well, all we want is an apology. Mm. He's playing entirely to the domestic gallery just focusing uh, on the fact that the information got released yeah that and yeah, happened. There, yeah there's a way in which you could say i'm never going to apologize for the traitorous behavior of edward snowden i mean there's lots of different ways in which you could have been clever at sounding resolute but leaving yourself a door open and i think that was a bit of a rookie error you know it was that like the best friends in asia it was the sentiment i think he was channeling was sort of instinctive abbott stuff but the form of words made life very difficult then there was the, the policy around asylum seekers these things together meant that 
you know, relationship with Indonesia was was very difficult for a considerable period of time. And in fact, they've only now really got it back on an even keel with the signature of a... Yeah, the Indonesians essentially said, what we want is a, a code of conduct for how we will handle our intelligence stuff. And basically, they wanted some face. They wanted something to be given back to them after the government had said, we're not going to apologise. And so after a sufficient length of period of time where Australia is kind of in the cold, we negotiate this and they get their piece of action, we get theirs. But by the time this has happened... SBY, so President Cecilio Bambang Yudhoyono, is now in his lame duck period. We have a new president, Jokowi, who is really unknown on the international stage. So far, he said he will be appointing kind of technocrats, technical people who, who kind of know what they're doing, whether it's in education, whether it's in governance, infrastructure, foreign policy. So, But we just don't know. And we also don't know what his instincts are going to be, apart from the fact that he's a populist, not a demagogic, nasty populist, but he's very much a you know, whenever there's a problem, we'll talk to the people and find a, find a solution to the problem. So what that will mean exactly for Australia's relations with Indonesia, we just don't know. And there are some who are very kind of concerned. We're seeing a government that for the first time really in post-independence Indonesia's past, you've got an Indonesian government that isn't ruled by cosmopolitan elites, but by Indonesians. So I think there is a great uncertainty. And Abbott really has not invested enough time in Southeast Asia. He's been to Indonesia. He stopped off in Malaysia briefly on the way back from his trip to India. And he stopped off in Singapore for two hours on the way to The Hague. He's pandering to the big guns, understandably, yep. Yep. but maybe directly in his backyard, ignoring the small fry. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. The focus that the government has is on bilateral relationships with Asia's major powers. And in order of importance, those are for the government, the US, Japan, India, China, and then possibly South Korea and Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, maybe following a long way behind. And the lesser powers of Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, uh, Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, Philippines, Brunei, don't worry. Unless or until there is one of Asia's many summits, in which case he'll go. So, for example, he'll go to the East Asia Summit in November, which is being held in, in Apidor, the capital of Myanmar. But the focus so far, and I think will remain very much a major power concentration for Australia's approach to Asia. Indonesia's at the fringes of that, but in the balance of priorities, it's the biggies first and everyone else second. Thanks for that, Nick. Thanks, Matt. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley. That's it today for Asia Rising. Don't forget, you can hear Nick speak at a public lecture at the State Library of Victoria on Tuesday, 14th of October, starting at 6 p.m. You can find out more information at the Latrobe Asia website. That's latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Thanks for listening and I hope to see you there.